at verses 12 through 14 today, picking up where Mark left off last week. However, um, I would like to read a few more verses just to get everything in context, particularly not only within the context of the shared portion of Scripture that Mark and I are looking at, but also to go a little further and into the Christological section that follows. So once again, our, our text is Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, but I'm going to start in verse 9 and go through 20. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we ask that you would bless our time in your word today. Bless our time, bless our hearts, bless our minds as we meditate on this portion of scripture. We thank you for it, Lord, and we thank you that um, we have the time to spend studying it. And we ask, Lord, that your spirit would guide us through it and that we would be transformed by your spirit to your glory and that we would come to know you better as a result come to know you better and know what you have done for us better. Please transform us by it, change us by it, and Lord, guide us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. So our verses today have two major highlights. Two major highlights. Uh, The first is that of the transfer of believers from darkness to light by the power of God and the work of Jesus Christ, which is something that Bill spoke about last Sunday morning, right? And then the second one is that of the ends for which God has his people planned and the coming end, right? Which is something that Bill spoke about last Sunday evening. (laughs) So if you were here last Sunday morning and last Sunday evening, you have already heard the two major highlights of our text this morning. And that's not something I'm complaining about. Not at all. In fact, I'm glad that we've already trodden that ground because what it allows me to do is just kind of uh, jump around a little bit in my normal way. So sadly, you guys have to indulge me in that. 
And I hope that you will partially indulge me as I kind of uh, jump around a little bit and I don't go back and say all the same things that Bill said last week, which he did better anyway. Um, But I also say partially indulge me, not just fully or completely, because I really don't want us ever to get complacent or um, to to just, I don't know... um, get half-hearted about expositing the scriptures and going through the, the, uh, the scriptures verse by verse and paying attention to what they say, right? That's what we're here for. That's what Cornerstone Bible Church does is we try to exposit the scriptures verse by verse. But I also say partially indulge me because I ask that you will kind of go along with me wherever I end up going and that you, uh, you follow along. I also beg your indulgence to allow me to rehash some of the points that Bill makes because they are needed for this deeper dive and you'll note them as we go along. And also I should note that these three verses which we will look at this morning are not just a continuation of the three that Mark Roman looked at last week, but also they don't really end, right? This is a prayer. Mark pointed this out, that these verses from 9 to about 14 are considered a prayer. But if you look at the text, there's no breaking point. You don't know... Yeah, you kind of know where they begin because he says, we pray for you in verse 9. But you don't know really where they end, do you? Most commentators all agree that it's verse 14. And that's how our studies have been split up, so that's what we'll go with. But I hope you'll excuse me and once again indulge me for playing a bit of jazz music here. Jumping around through this excellent first chapter of Colossians. It's all in the same key, but it's rather syncopated. And uh, to the extent that the verse that a verse here or a verse there doesn't really make sense in isolation, right? So if you're keeping track, I've asked you to indulge me about a half a dozen times, and I've only been talking for about three minutes. So um, yeah, just go where I go, and I'm taking I'm taking your silence as consent. So yeah, just uh, just come along with me. Let's get into the real introduction to our verses then. So as Mark taught last week and gave the first half of our shared section, together verses 9 through 14 do make up a whole. A five-verse prayer that Paul gives for the Colossian Christians, and by extension, us, right, as fellow believers. And in verses 9 through 11, if I can just whittle that down really, really tightly, Paul prays for the Colossians to be filled with wisdom and understanding in order to walk worthy of the Lord and do his will through continual growth and bearing fruit. But then at the, at the end of verse 11, there's a weird dangling word. I think Mark mentioned it last week. Joyously. Do you see that? If you have New American Standard, which is what I was reading out of, it's sitting there after a semicolon at the, at the end of verse 11. And it seems... In fact, if you have New American Standard, or if you have NIV, or if you have the New Revised, or something like that, the word seems to belong with verse 12, as in joyously giving thanks to the Father. That's what the New American Standard says. But if you have English Standard Version, or if you have KJV, it seems to belong to verse 11, as in, you know, for all endurance and patience with joy. Does it belong to verse 11, or does it belong to verse 12? 
Obviously, there are merits to arguments for both verses. Otherwise, you wouldn't have word-for-word translations like the New American Standard and the English Standard and the KJV differing on their placement amidst the punctuation of the phrases, right? I checked several commentaries, and they all came down on either side of the issue, uh, though the majority, along with uh, John Calvin and, and John MacArthur, um, they came down on the side of including it with verse 11. No, I feel rather sheepish going against such luminaries. I'll side with another commentator who gives a third, cho- a third choice, and that's that it really makes no difference at all. <laughs> And that we can kind of take it in both ways. We should give thanks to God the Father with joy. And we should endure and be patient with joy. Both should be done joyfully. We know that from other passages, right? Philippians 4.4, James 1.2, Proverbs 17.22. So just a few examples. But this is exactly the point for the prayer that Paul is praying for the Colossians. Everything has been accomplished by God the Father through the work of God the Son, and then it is poured out on his chosen people through God the Spirit so that we are qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That's what we're getting to today. And that should certainly fill us with joy, shouldn't it? Joy is found in the attainment of steadfastness and patience, as it would sound if, it went, if we took joy with verse 11. And joy is found when you give thanks to the Father, as we would take it with verse 12. Joy. And honestly, could we ask for a better word on which our passage could hinge this Christmas Eve day? Joy. I mean, joy. Even the world thinks about joy this time of year, for just this season in December. They don't know why they should be joyful nor what it really truly means. But they think about it and they verbalize it for this season, don't they? But for us Christians, joy fills us when we are happy and can see in all directions the blessings which God has poured out on us. And joy also fills us when the domain of darkness presses in on every dire- from every direction. Health fails, our loved ones enter painful times where we're persecuted for our Christian beliefs. Or the world seems to be falling from evil into deeper evil and it threatens to suck us in just by our proximity. Joy still conquers that because joy can only come from Christ and Christ is inconquerable, right? Unconquerable. Did I say inconquerable? When do you use in and when do you use un? He is unconquerable. He cannot be conquered. So let's look at the rest of Paul's prayer for the Colossians in terms of that joy which causes Bible translators and scripture commentators to do this great and falter. Let's reread starting in verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, 
for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So the joyous thanks which Paul prays for the Colossians, and by extension us, is given to the Father. To the Father. You see that in verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father. Joyously giving thanks to the Father. Why does Paul say it should be given to the Father? Pretty simple, because he has qualified us. Well, qualified us for what? He's qualified us to share. Well, to share what and with whom? To share the inheritance with the saints in light. Share the inheritance with the saints in light. Now, this is the first thing which should make us draw up on the reins a little bit and dive deeper. We share in what inheritance? Paul only calls it the inheritance in this passage. But that's not really descriptive enough for us, is it? An inheritance can be a really good thing, or it can be merely good, or it can be a bit of a burden, can't it? Maybe you inherit debts or valueless things that the government still wants to tax. Maybe you, res- maybe you inherit a responsibility to your, uh, which your benefactor didn't consider a responsibility or a burden, and yet which burdens you. So are we sharing a really good inheritance, or just a merely good inheritance, or a burden of an inheritance? And you're probably sitting there thinking to yourself, uh, it's from God, it's a really good inheritance, you dolt. And you'd probably be right in making that point. Just don't call me dolt next time. But I can give you actually three really good reasons why this is going to be a really good thing. This inheritance is a really good inheritance. And this should not escape us based on what we see in Colossians 1 as well as throughout the rest of Scripture. One reason is because the inheritance is described elsewhere in Scripture. It's described as imperishable, unspoiled, unfading, and reserved for you, kept for you. Isn't that awesome? Imperishable, unspoiled, unspoilable too, unfading, and reserved and kept for you. Imperishable, 1 Peter 1, 4 and 23. Matthew 6, 19 and 20. Unspoiled and unspoilable, Hebrews 7, 26 and Revelation 21, 27. Unfading, Revelation 21, 25. Reserved and kept for us. Guaranteed by the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, 2 Corinthians 1, 22, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, John 10, 28 and 29, and those aren't exhaustive. If you want those afterward, I'll be happy to give them to you because that is a great promise, that this is a really good inheritance, that it's imperishable, unspoiled, unfading, and guaranteed. So that's the first reason why we know this is a really good inheritance. A second inheritance, the second reason that this is a good inheritance, is because it is predicated on who God is. And we know by his attributes what a good God he is. In fact, we don't have to look beyond Colossians 1 to see what a good God he is. In fact, we don't even have to look beyond Colossians 1, 1 through 11 to see how good a God he is. 
and that Paul has already laid the groundwork to know that the inheritance which God the Father is giving is a good one. Why? Because God is graceful. Look at verses 2 and 6. Because God gives peace. That's also found in verse 2. Because God is the source of truth, and we know that truth only gives way to good things. That's verse 6. That God enables love is what we're told in verse 8. That God provides wisdom and understanding to his people. Verse 9. That alone would be a good enough inheritance. Just to understand what's going on in the world around us, right? And that God gives power for steadfastness and patience. And that we do it with joy, too. Verse 11. Right? So if it's predicated on who God is who his person is, then isn't that a pretty good guarantee that it's a good inheritance, a really good inheritance? So that's the second reason. The first reason is that it's in, this inheritance is imperishable, unspoilable, unfading, and guaranteed. The second is that it's predicated on who God is. And he's even told us, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. <laughs> you think that's going to be a burden for us that we're going to have to carry Receiving this inheritance, this good, wonderful inheritance based on who he is. Oh, and get this, there's a third wonderful reason. The third reason is because this inheritance is secured for us by Jesus. And he's sharing in this inheritance too, right? As our older brother, as the king, as the one who secured it to begin with. And that takes us to what Paul's next big section of Colossians is. As we kind of end the prayer part here from, from Paul, he launches into a Christological section in which he describes who Christ is and all of the goodness of him in that all things have been created and all things are sustained by him. And so not only is it God the Father and his attributes, but God the Son who shares those attributes and who secured it to begin with, secured our inheritance to begin with, and will himself share in it, that guarantees that this is a wonderful inheritance, an inheritance which we really don't deserve. Jesus Christ is incomparable. He's preeminent. He has secured it through our redemption and our reconciliation. And he now shares that same inheritance. And how do I know that? Okay, so actually, first of all, let me review. Three reasons why this is a really good inheritance. First, because it's imperishable, unspoilable, unfading, and guaranteed. Second, because it's predicated on who God is as the graceful, loving God. And third, because it's shared by our older brother, Jesus Christ, who secured it to begin with and who shares all the attributes of God the Father. But how do I know this? Because I look at verses 13 and 14. Look at verses 13 and 14 with me. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He who rescued and transferred, 
is God the Father, right? He rescued us. That's God the Father. And he transferred us. That's God the Father. To the kingdom of his beloved son. It's God the Son. And he, obviously, God the Son is in whom, right? His beloved Son obtained for us redemption and the forgiveness of sins, and it's by this redemption and forgiveness that God the Father rescues and transfers us. Then Paul, Paul goes on in verses 15 through 20 to describe who Christ is, and how he co- cooperates, not cooperates, cooperates. We want to be Trinitarian here, right? <laughs> they're, they're together. Unified, and once again, I don't want to actually try and explain this. I'm going to leave it to Brian next week. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we were talking beforehand. Yeah, it's, it's when you try to explain it that you actually get into trouble. <laughs> but we know that they are working for one purpose with one will to bring about the inheritance that we, that we receive. That is wonderful. They're cooperating. God the Father and God the Son, to redeem and reconcile all things to himself, as it says at the end of that passage, verse 15 through 20. Now we need to note that this is a transferal, going back to verses 13 and 14 in our text. Now we need to note that this is a transferal, a transference from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And that Paul describes the kingdom of his beloved Son in verse 12 as the inheritance of the saints in light. The saints in light. So he's describing who the saints are. They are in light. And you'll notice that light, in some of your your versions, it's capitalized, right? New American Standard, it's capitalized. Do you see that? Yeah. It's not because the Greek word, phos, there, must be translated as deity, but because it's clear in the context that the light is Christ himself, right? This happens lots, lots in Scripture. In fact, uh, Bill brought it up last week. He was talking about it when we were going through John 1. In the first 14 verses there, describes Christ not only as the Word, with a capital W, but light, with a capital L, Right? Look at that a little bit. In fact, you can go ahead and turn to John 1 momentarily because we're going to look at that a little bit. But notice that these, these saints are in light. They are in light. And the inheritance comes from being in the light, having been transferred from the domain of darkness into that light, right? And in John 1 verse 4, John describes Christ as in Christ, in him, in Christ, was life, and the life was the light of men. Ah, so now we're even equating light, this light that we're in, with life itself, right? Because the domain of darkness is death. Ah, so now we're starting to learn a little bit more about this life, about this inheritance, about this existence within the light. In Christ was life, and the life was the light of men. So the domain of darkness in our passage is that place which is outside of and contrary to the kingdom of his beloved son, saints in the light, Ah, and it's also outside of life. The redemption and forgiveness of sins in verses 14 of our text, which comes from the beloved son's work, is what rescues us from this domain of darkness and transfers us to the kingdom of his beloved son. 
So when we look at John 1, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, verse 4, we also keep on going and we get even more clarification, don't we? Verse 5, the light, uppercase L again, shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it or overcome it. That's what the light does. It shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend or overcome it. Um, I've, I've read commentators on this. I'm not sure what's the better translation, comprehend, overcome. All I know is that the darkness cannot win, right? In fact, the darkness is dead. If the life is with the light, if the life is with the word, then the life is not with the darkness, right? Jump down to verse 9 and verse 12. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Ah, it enlightens every man. How does that make sense? Okay, let's look at 12. But only as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. So it's predicated on whether you're a child of God that you actually do find the light, right? There was true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man, but only as many as received him. To them he gave the right to become children of God. And then finally in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we might, based on kind of the context within verses 14, and I'm not trying to to play fast and loose here, we might even be able to say, and the light became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. I don't want to play fast and loose there, but what's interesting is when we actually... Think about that in terms of the light and the word and of those those describing the Son of God and what he has attained for us. And we see in verse 14 what that light does in the flesh. We saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. How does that not shine out? Glory. You can almost see the flesh being pierced by the light of the Son of God. The flesh could could barely cover him. In fact, it couldn't cover him. It couldn't cover him adequately to not show his divinity. That's what John is trying to say here. Full of grace and truth. Who walks around with grace and truth other than the Son of God? Other than those who are being made into his image? How many walk around with the glory of God shining out from them apart from the word, the light, right? And so the concept of Jesus Christ as light helps us to see a glorious truth in what it means to be children of God, as John 1.12 puts it, or transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son, as our text puts it. You can go back to Colossians 1. Because when Jesus put on flesh, you know, incarnated, like we, like we celebrate every Christmas, everything changed. When Jesus put on flesh and dwelt among men, those who saw him saw the glory of God, glory as of the only begotten from the Father. They saw the light of life 
shining out from his poorly veiling flesh. That flesh couldn't hold it back. That's what light does in the darkness, right? The darkness which had so infiltrated the flesh of man since the first Adam could not hold back or cover up the light which the second Adam brought from the Father. And if all our hopes rest on the promises of God for inheritance and for life and for all good things, as it says in Romans 8.28, remember, right? Yeah. We're promised that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Right? And then, guess what? If that's true, if all our hopes rest on that, if that's what brings us joy, what does Paul say in Romans 8.29? That we're predestined to be conformed to His image. Right? Ah, so we can carry this forward. We can understand, oh, so this light, this life, this glory that shone from the, the, the incarnation of God on earth, we are predestined to be conformed to that image. Not it perfectly, not itself, and certainly not in this life. It won't be perfected until that day of glorification when we die or when Christ returns. But praise the Lord, it's coming. And praise the Lord, it's been promised. And then it also puts into, well, I'll get to that in a second. Because Romans 8 has lots to say on this subject, right? But those who observe Jesus' life as it talks about in John 1, saw his glory, glory as of, the only, as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we also, this is the point here, we also should be bursting forth with the light of his glory as we proclaim grace and truth. Isn't that right? Isn't that kind of what we should be taking from this whole concept? we also should be bursting forth with the light of His glory as we proclaim grace and truth. That is what it means to have been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of His beloved Son. That is what it means to be saints in light. Saints in light. Now I'm going to... And you guys already agreed to go with me, so you're stuck. I'm going to go off a little bit on an application because evidently I'm incapable of doing any teaching without slipping into preaching. I'm sorry. But I have to ask you, I have to ask you, is the light of Christ barely contained within your flesh? Must people who know you also know grace and truth? Must they know it because you cannot contain it? I ask this question because darkness is helpless before the light. I mean, we should know this really well, but we don't, I think. In our world of electricity and LEDs and all that sort of thing, we go into a room that's dark, we flip a switch, and then we're shocked when the light doesn't come on. But think about nights before electricity. Think about nights without oil to light a lamp. Or without 
a, a candle to chase away the shadows. The oily blackness closes in around. I mean, we can notice it when we flip the light switch. We walk into the inky blackness of a room. We flip a switch, and where, do the, where does the darkness go? It scurries out like a bunch of cockroaches, <laughs> seeking a shadow or finding the space behind a wall. Because light always conquers darkness. Right? And so it should give us pause when we think about our ability and willingness to wield the light which we have been given. Shine. Shine so brightly that the years of fleshly mildew on this body of death start to crack and pull back and reveal the refulgent, incomparable brightness of the image of the invisible God. Shine so that your employer knows that you are the younger brother or sister of the king of all creation. Shine so that your family is blinded by the work of the Spirit in your life growing in you from day to day. Shine so that you call out the civil magistrate putting up statues of Baphomet to realize that they will stand before the creator of all the universe one day. And instead of cowardly, pathetic leadership, that they will instead of standing up for some narcissistic self, self, how do I put it, self-serving, make a self-serving effort to get reelected, that they'll actually do what's right. That's what you should be doing. That's what we should be doing. That's what all of God's people should be doing is shining. Shine so that your neighbor, having interacted with you or not interacting with you that much, ends up realizing that when they stand before God, they will have to acknowledge that his transference from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light for you has poured over and spilled over onto their property and into their life to the point where they see how the light shines. That's what we should be doing. Shine so that the culture hates you and seeks to scurry into the shadows and behind the walls to get away from your light. After all, isn't that how Paul ends Romans 8? Yeah, he said, all things work together for good for those who, are, uh, who love God and are called according to his purpose. They are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Why? Verses 36 and 37, as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were counted as sheep for the slaughter, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. That's what happens. Light always conquers darkness. Conformity to Christ always conquers nonconformity to Christ. And it's not just going to happen when Christ returns. It's happening now. You are being conquered. And anyone you bring to Christ is being conquered. And the church of God will grow and grow it will strengthen 
in spite of the pathetic pastors we see leading a lot of churches, in spite of the lack of knowledge from those who call themselves Christians, no, it's still growing. It's still being built up. Because God won't leave the bride of Christ in a stained garment, right? God will purify. And praise God. All right, so back, done with the application part. Back to the exegesis here. Back to our text. This inheritance of the saints in light is the end, the telos to which we are called. It's a calling and an end which is happening now. And I kind of just mentioned that, didn't I? Do you understand that? Do you realize that? This inheritance, this transformation, this transference from dark to light is happening now. No, it's true that it won't be complete until we die or Christ returns. You're right about that. Nevertheless, the transformation has begun. Many commentators on this passage of uh, Colossians 1, verses 12 through 14, point out that Paul may be trying to bring up in the minds of the Colossians the story of the exodus from Egypt, how God delivered the Israelites from the domain of darkness of slavery and transferred them to the light of the land of inheritance. That's a story and a parallel for another day, or actually in your your, uh, discussion groups, because I did put a question about that on there. But Paul doesn't just allude to transformation and transference from dark to light here in chapter 1 of Colossians. He also says, in fact, I'll flip over a couple pages to Colossians chapter 3. Look at these first three verses and see the, um, the links that, that we have with our passage. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking. Oh, notice, by the way, that's have been raised up that's uh that's past tense right <clears throat> therefore if you have been raised up with Christ keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God set your mind on the things above not on the things that are on earth for you have died past tense have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God present tense your life is hidden when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Incidentally, that word hidden there, <laughs> it could be taken to mean the opposite of what I'm talking about with light. Because you can't hide light, can you? At least not have it be useful then. But it's hidden. And actually, that, that word in Greek does not mean, it, it doesn't simply mean that um, um, it's not, cons- it's, it, it doesn't have to be um, described as hidden. I'm doing a really bad job here. Incidentally, that word hidden simply means that it's concealed from the perishing. It's, it's not that it's hidden that it can't be seen, but rather that it can't be understood. It can't be comprehended, as we saw, right? The darkness did not comprehend it. It did not overcome it. So I want to, I want to point out that there's the past tense of having been raised up, of having died, and then a present tense that your life is hidden when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed. So we shouldn't be... We should understand the situation that we're in. We're in a situation in which 
the glory of God has been revealed to us. It's been revealed to the whole world. And yet we've got a bunch of deaf, dumb, and blind people out there who can't see it. That doesn't mean it hasn't happened, and it doesn't mean that the light isn't flooding through this darkness. And the same thing happens with us as we're transferred and trans, uh, transformed by the work of God in our lives. Just because maybe it seems hidden at times or concealed for a moment doesn't mean that it's not working and that God won't at some point in the future remove the, the concealing agent, whatever it is, the scales from the eyes of those around us so that the, the light shines through. It's happening now and one day it will be made full. It will be made complete. And I want to encourage all of us about that. As Bill talked about last Sunday evening, the end is coming. And there is an end in mind, an end, a goal that God has for each one of us in that end. Doesn't that fill you with joy and fill you with with, um, comfort and peace? And as we have already been transferred, or as we have already been, uh, have already died, have already been raised up, as he points out here in uh, Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3, shouldn't we realize that that is done and that this inheritance which we have, which is imperishable, unspoiling, unfading, and guaranteed, shouldn't that fill us? with more joy? And shouldn't it make the light shine all the brighter through this flesh? This flesh cannot obstruct the light of the glory as of the only begotten when Jesus' followers looked at him in the flesh and it's unable to hold us back from revealing that he is at work in our lives. It certainly won't obstruct the transformation and transference which God is working and will work on our lives as he takes us from darkness to life. This trip through the wilderness between Egypt and the promised land has a sanctifying effect. It takes us from dull, drab, shadowy darkness to brilliant light, which shines out as a beacon to come to the inheritance won and reigned over by our older brother and our Savior, the King, Jesus Christ. So next week we find out more about King Jesus, as Paul writes one of the most eloquent and beautiful descriptions of who he is. But until then, until then, we're encouraged to shine with the light of redemption to the shadowy domain of darkness from which we have been redeemed, right? Praise God. And praise God for the incarnation of his son, which showed it. Amen? Wonderful. I love Christmas time. Let's pray. Dearest Father, we thank you so much for revealing yourself to us through your Son Jesus, by your Spirit in our hearts, and by the wonderful words that you have given us in the Bible. And when we receive words of such encouragement and such power about transformation and transference from darkness to light, about the glory of your Son Jesus being worked in us so that we are slowly but surely transformed into his image, into conformity with him.
so that we may bring about greater glory and proclamation of truth and grace for you. Lord, may the world see it. May the world also be transformed, just as we know it will be one day. May it be renewed all to your glory. And let evil and darkness everywhere be banished. Lord, we know that this is your will, and we know that you are working it now. And we praise you. We praise you. We praise you for what we see of it now. Please reveal more that we may honor you and be joyful in greater degree. Please help us to encourage us uh, to encourage each other with this fact every day as we see the night fleeing before you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, for discussion groups, um, well, first of all, the questions, I've got some up front and then some in the back corner over here if you don't have the questions already. And then where do we have the discussion groups? Got one up here. One back here and one downstairs. We have three. Okay. All right, one downstairs, one back here in the adult Sunday school room, and one in here.